Hello, Great Woman Artist listeners. It's Katie here. And just before we get into today's episode on the brilliant Augusta Savage, I wanted to let you know I have written a book, which is out this September. The Story of Art Without Men aims to retell art history with pioneering non-male artists who spearheaded movements and redefined the canon. It is available to pre-order now from Amazon, Waterstones and more. And I have linked to this in the show notes. In this series, I am so excited to be continuing my partnership with the brilliant Alighieri Jewelry, who have been supporting the GWA podcast for the last two years. Alighieri creates fragmented talismans of imperfection hand-cast in London's Hatton Garden from recycled silver and gold. The brand was founded by Rosh Matani to guide her through a dark time. Each piece has a story and invites you to unlock your own. I am so excited to tell you about their most recent collection, Untitled. The collection explores the power of body language to express emotion in a world where words are often not enough. The use of body language dates back to prehistoric times, much like jewellery. The collection will be released in six drops, with only ten of each piece available for now. The second drop has just arrived, and I can't wait to tell you about it. In Greek mythology, Medusa is depicted as a terrifying woman with the ability to turn anyone who looks at her into stone. For their autumn-winter 2022 collection, Rush wanted to reframe her and celebrate her power as a strong woman. In the Medusa series, the signature Alighieri texture comes to life in a trio of everyday serpent talismans, handcrafted, as always, in London's Hatton Garden. Allow the power and strength of the Medusa heirlooms to weave their way around your body, reminding you to never be afraid of your own conviction. You can visit the full collection at Alighieri.com. And just for our listeners, Alighieri is offering a 10% discount across all products with the code TGWA at checkout. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I'm so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is the acclaimed art historian and curator Jeffreen M. Hayes, a graduate of Howard University who earned a PhD in American Studies from the College of William and Mary. Hayes has since gone on to trailblaze as the executive director of Three Walls Chicago. Merging administrative, curatorial and academic practices into her cultural practice of supporting artists and community development, Hayes has been instrumental in advocating racial inclusion, equity and access across the arts that invites community participation, particularly those in marginalised communities. Curatorial projects include the revolutionary Augusta Savage, Renaissance Woman, Afrikobra, Messages to the People, Process and Afrikobra, Nation Time, and Jefferine also speaks and writes about art history, black art, arts activism, and recently held a TED Talk about arts activism in simple steps, which I highly recommend. 
But the reason why we are very excitingly speaking with Jeffrey today is because she has also been instrumental in championing the work and legacy of Harlem Renaissance pioneer Augusta Savage. Overcoming poverty, racism and sexual discrimination, Savage is one of the greatest American artists of the 20th century and is famed for her emotionally tender and stoic life-size figures and plaster portrait busts. Working with images to elevate black culture into mainstream America, Savage was also a key community organizer, exhibitor and teacher to so many. Not only should she become the first African-American woman in the U.S. to open her own private art gallery, she was also appointed the first director of the Harlem Community Arts Center, as confirmed by Jeffreen, who has previously stated... I don't think about Augusta Savage as someone who only made objects, but rather as someone who has really left behind a blueprint of what it means to be an artist that centres humanity. Jeffrey M. Hayes, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm lovely, lovely. Thank you for that incredible introduction and for inviting me to be on your podcast to talk about Augusta Savage, someone I dearly, dearly love. Thank you so much for coming on today. It is such an honor to speak to you. Augusta Savage is someone who I have wanted to discuss in the podcast for so long, and it is thanks to your work and research that so many of us know more about her. Savage, like I said, was an artist, exhibitor, and an educator to so many. You might say a trailblazer in every field she worked in. But I want to start with her art, those stoic busts and figures which she imbued with dignity, honesty, emotion, which probably reflected who she was how she saw the world and how she wanted to change it. So I want to start by asking you, what draws you to the work of Augusta Savage? I would say with her sculptures, being able to see Black folks reflected in this dignity, even with some of the stoicism as a Black woman and kind of see a reflection of who I am and my family and my community, it's why I'm drawn to her. I think what's so different about her portraits is that you do get a breadth of humanity. Like, for example, in Gammon, and Gammon is a portrait of a young Black boy. Stories differ around who the person is. There are stories where it's a portrait of a young homeless boy that she saw on the street. Then there's other stories where it is her nephew. Regardless of who it is, even though this portrait where the expression is stoic and almost emotionless, for me, it's the eyes and being able to see the depth of this young boy has seen a lot and experienced a lot, but is so beautifully rendered and so graceful. Yeah, absolutely. And how do you feel when you're confronted with her work? I'm really kind of overwhelmed with joy that these images exist and that there was someone who really committed her artistic practice to depicting Black people in the most beautiful way. And then also a little bit of sadness, right? Because we don't have a lot of her works available and there should be an Augusta Savage in every public museum collection. And so the fact that there aren't a lot available and that folks do not get the opportunity to engage the work physically is disheartening. I also think about what was going on 
in her life. And then the thought of the sitter who had the honor of being depicted, thinking about how joyous that must have been for them. So it's a lot of emotion around who she was as a person, who the person is, and her interpretation of that person. Yeah, I mean, obviously, she's much more well known in America. But you know, we have no Augusta Savages in Britain. And imagine the power of having an Augusta Savage in every public institution here, or even just a few and what that would do for the next generation. And I mean, you say, there aren't many works left. So how did you then first discover her work? And how did you come to it? I was first introduced to Augusta Savage's work as a grad student at Howard University. Howard is a historically Black college, and I knew that I wanted to focus on Black art or African-American art. And so where else would I go to study this? Considering that the teacher alumni is like Lois Milu Jones, Elizabeth Catlett was a student there. <laughs> yeah, and Augusta Savage also has a relationship with Howard. So there are all these like threads. And so it was in an art history survey class and the section was on the Harlem Renaissance. And here is this portrait of not only Gammon, but the Howard University Art Gallery also has a small sculpture called La Citadel or, or Freedom. And I just thought like, oh my God, how amazing that this woman, again, because I think we also have to remember that throughout the history of art, right? Painting is the dominant medium. Even though when we think about the Western canon, we do have sculpture, right? But they're men. And so I was thinking about like, why would this woman choose to make these sculptures? How incredible is that, that she followed that passion? And so being in this class and learning about this Black woman who was so instrumental in the Harlem Renaissance and was also from Florida, because I grew up in Florida. And so being introduced to her in this way was really life-changing. And I didn't know it at the time, though. What also stuck with me was the fact that we did not spend a lot of time on Augusta Savage. But I also noticed that here's this one Black woman during this period who was so instrumental to so many of the other artists that we are spending more time on. Because it's like, oh, so there's a little bit of sexism at play even in this moment. And that class was in 2003. And she's always kind of been part of my trajectory. And I didn't realize it truly until I got to Chicago. And then kind of starting my curatorial career, I was at Hampton University Art Museum. And they had some Augusta Savages in their collection. But they also had these really unique uh, bookends that she made for County Cullen. And County Cullen was a Harlem Renaissance poet. And he and Augusta Savage were friends. Oh my gosh, how incredible. And you mentioned when you got to Chicago, you really got to pursue this curatorial career. What sort of compelled you to pursue such extensive research on Augusta Savage? So 
I've been in Chicago eight years now. And so when I came to Chicago, I had left a museum career. And there was the beginning of connecting my curatorial practice and wanting to really break down the barriers between art and the public. And in this specific instance of Black majority community, it's not enough to just create an exhibition that features Black artists and then just expect Black folks to come to the museum. Like you actually have to build a relationship. And I was doing that work and doing it successfully, but also realized through that time that the museum as an institution was not invested in it long-term. So recognizing the power of going into community, talking about art, talking about how it is relevant to people's lives, and that art is not only what you see in museums. Art and culture is around us. And it was during that time, I took like a five-month sabbatical. And that was in that moment where I was like, huh, Augusta Savage came up because the former director of the Kummer Museum of Art and Gardens in Jacksonville, Florida, Hope McMath, she comes up to me and she says, I've been looking for you. And I was like, huh? Like, really? (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. So we were talking and she's like, you know, I I love Augusta Savage. We want to do a show giving her her due with new research and to reintroduce her to our community. And when she told me, I was like, oh, my God. (laughs) I said, I, one, am honored. And two, (laughs) I love Augusta Savage. And so that was kind of the impetus to continue the research on her and to begin to think about her as a human. The artwork is really important, and I never want to dismiss what artists make. But I also think that who an artist is shows up in their work, whether they want to acknowledge it or not. But that was the beginning of this moment I can say in the U.S. where museums were beginning to position contemporary artists as change agents, as community builders. And so we're in this moment and a lot of artists were being deemed pioneers, but I was like, but someone's already done it. (laughs) Like Augusta Savage has done it. And so That's why it was really an opportune moment to dig a little bit deeper into who Augusta Savage was and the work that she did that includes not only the making that she did, but her education, right? Her, Her teaching, her advocacy, her creating institutions. That was all part of her practice. Yeah. It's almost like people don't even realize the legacy because it was so strong that she has had on this world and the impact. And so what we can all do now is just honor her and celebrate her and teach people about her as well, because she was the pioneer. And it's almost like people consciously or unconsciously don't even know that, which is so exciting because that power, that baton has been carried on through. But I want to get to the beginning of her life. 
She was born in 1892 in the brick-making town of Green Cove Springs, Florida. On a leap day, uh, she was the seventh of 14 children and her father was a Methodist minister. Tell us about her childhood, who were her family, and how was art viewed in her childhood? We do not know a lot about Augusta Savage. So when it comes to her early life and her family, she was a daughter of, of a preacher, so she was a preacher's kid, and grew up in a household where religion really was the center. And I say that because her making sculptures, even as a child, was seen as kind of like a sacrilege. She was making false idols. And so if you've never been to North Florida, in North Florida, it's very much connected to the land of of Georgia. And I say that because the dirt in some parts of North Florida is red. So it's like red clay. And so she would make these animal sculptures out of this red dirt clay because she didn't have access to clay. And so this is before probably even knowing that she wanted to be a sculptor. It was something so natural to her. And her father, seeing this as idolatry and whipping her. And I'm going to read specifically a quote that she says about growing up with this father, about him really wanting to, in a sense, whip the art out of her. So quoting her, she says, there were four whippings a day. And she does mean whippings. And it's such a heartbreaking thing to know to experience this kind of abuse for something that was so natural to her. And also what I find interesting about that too is just how so many artists kind of experience that level of, not necessarily like physical abuse, but the questioning of your artistic gift and whether or not this is something you should be doing because I have different dreams for you, right? But that didn't stop her. She continued to make art. She was married at 15, had a child a year later. And at about 1915, she moved with her family to West Palm Beach. So at this time, she's 23. And while in West Palm Beach, is again this desire to make and to sculpt and there's a story around her going to a clay manufacturer to ask for clay so she could make and makes a deal with not just the owner but also begins to start teaching art to the school children while making her objects Wow. I didn't know that. So it even started there. She was teaching at this time. She was making, obviously in the early 1920s, she goes to New York City. I mean, what prompts this move? She's got a young child. What happens? Yeah. So when she was in West Palm Beach, I believe his name is George Curry. He was very supportive of Augusta Savage's talent and encouraged her to go to New York to further her gift. And she does go to New York, leaves her daughter with her family, and becomes part of this great migration of Black folks from the South moving north 
and gets into Cooper Union and realizes that there is a waiting list. And there's like over like 140 girls on this list, but talks to uh, a professor and she says, well, I want to see your work. So she comes back the next day with the work and she gets a spot. (gasps) That is how talented she was. Oh my God. Makes a work in 24 hours. (gasps) What's also, I think, important to note about this is she goes to New York, but also is having to work. Yeah. So she works as a domestic to help pay her her way. Loses that job. She does get a scholarship. And she finishes a four-year program in three years. Oh, my God. So, again, you're talking about someone who had never had formal training in school just sets the tone for who she was supposed to be and who we know her to be. And her time in New York wasn't all obviously like glory. While she's making, she is also continuing to work, you know, doing laundry. And I think that also speaks to obviously like class and obviously race. And so she didn't have the luxury that some Black folks had at that time of being taken care of. And so community came around to support her as well during that time by helping to raise funds so that she could pay her way. That's amazing. And to think that she gave back so much in her life as well. But I mean, this must have been so exciting for her. Arriving in New York City at the dawn of the kind of glittering Harlem Renaissance. I mean, how did she then come to play such a vital role in the Harlem Renaissance community? I mean, I'm aware that she had a sort of small studio apartment on West 137th Street. And how did she gain access to that community? So there's an incident that happens. And I share this story because we hear these stories about these artists who have made this impact, but we rarely hear a lot about how racism comes to play. Yeah. So in 1923, she applies for the Fountain Blue Scholarship to study in France. And it's the first year they're offering this scholarship to women artists. And she's one of 100 that gets the scholarship. Well, the committee did not know that she was Black. And so when they learned that she was Black, they took the scholarship away. And I'm just going to, if you don't mind, I'm going to read an excerpt from the essay because I think this is the moment, unbeknownst to her, that would help her build community in, in Harlem. Although the French government sponsored the program, an American selection committee comprised entirely of white men identified the awardees. Unbeknownst to them, they had selected a woman. Once they learned that Savage was Black, Her scholarship was rescinded on the basis that Southern white women should not be expected to share travel accommodations with a Black woman. Now, again, this is the turn of the century after Reconstruction. So this is a moment where we're talking about post-slavery. Black folks are working to not just create their identity separated from enslavement, 
but an America that is having to navigate what it means to engage Black folks who are not enslaved, right? So she didn't take it lightly, obviously, but it made national news. And there were headlines that said, like, Negress denied entry to French art school. There were a lot of uh, prominent Black people who spoke out about it. One notable scholar, W.E.B. Du Bois, who was asked to speak on it. And before he would speak on it, he wanted to do his due diligence by asking the committee members, how did they come to this decision? So he wrote letters to them and There were some who said it was based only on merit. There were some who acknowledged, well, we can't actually expect white women to travel with this Negro woman. So blatantly stating the discrimination. But instead of disallowing other people to speak about her experience, Augusta Savage wrote a letter to the editor and called the action in the committee to task. Oh my gosh, this is amazing. I mean, the the strength that she must have had. I mean, there's no wonder that she has had such a legacy on the world. Because, I mean, also she was so young at this point. She was only like in her late 20s, early 30s. I mean, this is so bold. I mean, this is revolutionary. Very bold of her to speak out for the moment will take race off of the table. And just as a woman, right, women during this period were only to be seen, not heard. And so here is this woman who decides that actually, no, I'm going to speak up for myself and not just for myself, but for the future. Yes, that's it. And so this is who Augusta Savage was and really set the tone for who she would be in Harlem. This is a moment to acknowledge the power of community and supporting artists yes, and not leaving artists on their own to navigate the world. This is also a moment where Black community understood community and supporting each other. But I guess it's also so thanks to some people like W.E.B. Du Bois in the sense that, you know, he also stuck up for her. And actually, when people do champion you, you're so much more inclined to champion others because you know the impact that it does to people. And actually, I'm sure that, you know, having those people around her gave her the strength. You know, no one could ever do anything on their own. It's all about community. Absolutely. So having Du Bois kind of speak up for her And then I think 1931, years later, the final letter came in from the committee member. It's so interesting to me that it took that long for someone to respond. And then Du Bois responding and basically saying in a letter that, yes, it was racial discrimination. This is also a moment where you have artists and scholars being seen as the leaders in the community and they're all kind of around each other and know each other. And Augusta Savage was absolutely in the middle of all that. She used her home and her studio as a gathering place, a place to build community. I love hearing the stories of Black artists who were not in Harlem, but were like in Brooklyn, who made the trek over to connect with Augusta Savage and to learn from her. That was the story that Jacob Lawrence has shared. 
I love that she's just like this matriarch out there that everyone knows about. <laughs> she really, really was. There was a lot of artists who did incredible things, but a lot of the artists we know today simply would not have been who we know if they had not engaged Augusta Savage. Especially when you hear someone like Jacob Lawrence really speak lovingly about Augusta Savage and how important she was not just to him, but to his wife, uh, Gwendolyn Knight. And Jacob Lawrence met his wife at Augusta Savage's studio. Yeah, it's it's amazing though. All those are what I mean, Elizabeth Catlett, Lois Miley Jones, they were such amazing educators. But I want to go back slightly. I mean, in 1929, she then does go to Paris and she was able to study here for two years. I mean, what then happened to her work and why do you think Paris was an attractive place for her? Paris, during this time, when you think about what was happening in the United States, coming out of Reconstruction, slavery, and a, a country that still does not see Black people as human. And think about being an artist on top of that, right? Trying to navigate. Paris, for so many Black artists, was attractive because they felt seen as humans. The color of their skin did not impact them being an artist. So they were known as an artist rather than as a Negro artist or a Black artist. There's also access to materials, to artists, to studios where you could learn. And we know that Western art continues to be the dominant art, right? So why not go to the art center, right? And then, you know, there was an enclave of Black artists there. So being there and expanding the way that she can can make and that process was really important and very impactful. And you do see the difference between her time in Paris and then kind of the work she makes later here. And she was kind of criticized a little bit for it because it felt too Eurocentric. But I think what tends to get overlooked during this time is that there's this diversity of Black people, right? Like there was racial mixing. So this notion that a portrait bust may not represent or have typical Negro features, like I understand it, but it was also like, yeah, but we had so much racial mixing that how can you really define Negro features? So I think Augusta Savage also understood that the modernist, expressionist work that she was making in Paris was not going to pass muster in the United States with the Black community. And so learning that there, but then also adapting whatever technical skills she learned into what we know of her work today. Yeah, absolutely. But then she returns to a New York. I mean, this is the height of the Depression that she returns to in 1931. I mean, a really tough time. But it was also around this time that she establishes the Savage Studio of Arts and Crafts. Like you said, people like Charles Alston, people like Jacob Lawrence, Gwendolyn Knight, they all attended. Tell us about this place and how this impacted local artists. And what do you think made her such a strong advocate for this education at this time? Creating the Savage Studio and offering free classes, understanding that many of the folk would not be able to 
ever afford to go to college or to pay for classes. And so it is that notion of, yes, let me give back and create this space where young and old can come and make and learn. And teaching those same artists that you noted that they too have to give back. And many of them did in teaching. And so also the experience in Paris where you're around these artists and you're around community and sharing and exchanging, bring that back to Harlem and formalizing it in the Savage Studio. And I think that's an important lesson for us, even in this moment of pandemic life, that you actually don't need a lot to create community and to create a space where people can see themselves. Yeah, I love this quote that she says. She says, I have created nothing really beautiful, really lasting. But if I can inspire one of these youngsters to develop the talent I know they possess, then my monument will be in their work. And that's just so powerful. I mean, the fact she let these kids use her art to supplies. This is an artist who is extremely highly acclaimed, is clearly known around America, known in Paris. And she's instilling that agency into kids and the bus that she does of Gwendolyn Knight around 1930. And it's just so poised. It's just beautiful. And you can just tell that there's such a kind of internality to Augusta Savage's bust. It's like, you know, I love that what you said earlier with Gammon, it's like, it could be a homeless boy. It could be her nephew. In a way, it doesn't really matter. It's a human and they imbue that emotion. And it's like they have kind of flesh underneath them. They're so vivid that is my favorite sculpture (laughs) it really is and it's for all the reasons that you just said just like a photographer I think some of the best photographers even if they don't have this deep personal relationship with their sitter there is this vulnerability there is this trust between the person in front of the camera and behind the camera and you can feel that in the the portrait. And I think with Augusta Savage, there was just this trust. With Gwendolyn Knight, they had this lifelong friendship. And that shows in the portrait of her when you know this. It's like, well, yes. And you can feel the level of intimacy that they had. I also love the quote that you just shared. It is my favorite quote of hers. And I think, again, when artists are thinking about their legacy, and we are in this contemporary moment where artists and their objects are much more important than probably the good works that the artists do in their lives. With Augusta Savage, she understood that her legacy was actually not the objects. Yeah. It really was how she cared and loved for the people that she encountered, the young people, the young adults, and whether or not they would go on to be artists was one thing, but it's kind of like what she instilled in them was the sense of generosity, the sense of compassion, the self-determination that I don't know kind of exists today with a lot of artists. 
I think she also understood that because as a sculptor and not casting a lot of her work permanently because she couldn't afford it, that again, the community that she was building and supporting and caring would carry forward her legacy. And so I think this was someone who was deeply aware of the significance of her presence as an artist, as a Black woman, as a Black woman sculptor, during a time where she was not supposed to be successful. She wasn't supposed to be seen. She wasn't supposed to be loved. And just turning all of that into the work that she did. But also, I mean, her legacy is also as an amazing businesswoman as well. Because like in 1937, because of the success of her studio and her dedication to art education, the federal art project of the WP appointed uh, Savage as the first director of the Harlem Community Arts Centre. And under her leadership, I think something like 1,500 members of the community were able to receive free art instruction for like 16 months. And Eleanor Roosevelt was so impressed that she kind of used it as a model for other art centers across the country. I mean, th- this is a woman who who trailblazed in every single corner. And so like her monument isn't just education, it's, it's business in an amazing way. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, she understood that art was a business. And what an honor to have just created, right, this studio, using her studio as a space to teach, to then scale it up in a sense, right, to the Harlem Community Arts Center and for it to be a model. And it was a really incredible moment in her life and and her leadership and her business acumen to be able to create this center Oh, she's just incredible. But I mean, in 1937, Savage was one of four women and the only black woman artist commissioned by the New York World's Fair in 1939 to create a sculpture symbolizing the musical contributions of African-Americans. I mean, this was, you know, often said in newspaper articles, you know, her big break. I mean, tell us about this piece, The Harp. How did it come about and, and how was she recognized? The harp is this interpretation of Lift Every Voice and Sing and connecting to the fact that this was a hymn that school children were taught and taught in Jacksonville and made its rounds across the country to where it was adopted as this national anthem of hope. And so it it was a 16-foot plaster sculpture where it was made to look like a harp. And so the arm of the harp is actually an arm with the children in choir robes as the strings. Yeah. And they are singing. And it is just this, I think this really beautiful embodiment of Black hope during that period and absolutely resonates today. And shows her commitment to young people, to the culture, thinking about how spirituals and then hymns are also bedrock of Black artistic contributions to the United States and places of not just struggle, but also hope. And this sculpture being so 
prominent visibly in the pavilion. It was one of the most photographed works of art there. It was so popular. I mean, 16 foot high is a kind of monument. It's amazing. Right. And making it in different parts. And one of the things I really appreciate about this moment was seeing, you know, the the work in progress, the, the photographs of her in her studio making it. And these photographs are in black and white. And it was, again, very well received. It was quite remarkable when you think about Augusta Savage's story. And also how much she was doing at this time as well. <laughs> and how much she was doing. Exactly. And, you know, not getting paid much for it and not enough to cast it permanently. Yeah. I love how she used like shoe polish for bronze effect. I think that's amazing. It's like use every resource you have, you know, to make something shine. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. But I mean, it was destroyed after the fair. But as you say, People are sort of advocating for this work to be reinstated in whatever form that takes. But I mean, you know, she went on in the 1940s to create the bust of John Henry is so beautiful. So it's so emotional, that work and all all the the bust of the boxer Jack Johnson, you know, immortalizing these figures who deserve to be immortalized no matter what material. And and it's, it's the legacy of kind of immortalizing these people that lives on as well. You know, the fact that she captures their humanity and they are people. I mean, I'd love to ask you, what has she taught you, would you think? You know, Augusta Savage continues to live with me in spirit. And probably the most important lesson from her life is to follow your vision wherever it may go. And to not let anyone kind of get in the way of it. And I think you can do all of the things. So we were just saying she's working on this World's Fair Commission while doing everything else. But it's also important to like take a step back. There's a sense of humility about Augusta Savage. Like she wasn't someone who ever patted herself on the back, right? Like she didn't necessarily sing her praises. But I've learned because of that, that you can champion community, but you can also champion yourself within that and to not dismiss the good work that you're doing. Absolutely. Jeffrey, this has been the most incredible insight into Augusta Savage. Thank you. But as this is the Great Women Artists podcast, we do always ask our guests, if you could say something or ask something to Augusta Savage, what would it be? I would ask Augusta Savage if she had the financial support, because we know she had the community support. But if she had the financial support, what would she have wanted to accomplish that she did not? Because I think I think about how different her life, not just personally, but professionally would have been had she been able to have that financial support after the World's Fair. Because, you know, after that time, when she was trying to use her visibility, her notoriety to continue to advocate for black artists. And she was the first black woman to own a commercial gallery. And so she created the Salon of Contemporary Negro Artists. And it was only open for a few months because, you know, we're also talking about 
the coming out of the Great Depression and people weren't buying work. And so what would it have meant if she had the support financially and didn't leave Harlem and kind of die in obscurity? Yeah. Jeffrey, and thank you so much for carrying on her legacy and making sure we all know about her. I'm sure every person listening is going to be so grateful. Thank you so much for talking with me today and for coming on the Great Women Artists podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you all so much for listening to the 81st episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with the brilliant Jeffrey M. Hayes on the trailblazing Augusta Savage. What an insight into her incredible career. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Nardus Manelic and research assistant was Viva Ruji. And if you have been enjoying these episodes so far, I would be so grateful if you could leave a review as it helps others find us. And of course, thank you for listening to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Thanks again to my amazing sponsor, Alighieri Jewelry. Follow their journey on at Alighieri underscore jewelry to hear all about their latest collections and discover their magical talismans at Alighieri.com. Don't forget to use the code TGWA at checkout for a 10% discount. 